Hello and welcome to this series of short videos produced with our friends at Timeline, designed to answer some of the questions we've been asked by parapanners about investing. You can find links to the other videos in this series in the description below this video. And if you've got any questions on the topics covered, please get in touch via email or pop a question on the Big Tent and we'll answer it for you. I'm really pleased that Timeline is supporting the Parapanners Assembly this year. Uh, and we're joined by Laurentius, who knows this topic inside out. So Laurentius, please introduce yourself. Hi, Richard. Thank you very much. And it's a privilege to be on the call. Um, yeah, so quick introduction. I'm Laurentius van den Vorm, Investment Strategist at Timeline Portfolios. Brilliant. It's great to have you along again. So uh, Laurentius has done some slides for us, which we'll bring up on the screen uh, right now. And let's start off with the first question. So what is it and why is it important? So I think asset allocation, and you need to think the way that the industry has evolved over the years, Richard, it started out with equities and fixed income. I think just buying a share of something. And when I say equities and fixed income, it actually all started out with something we'll touch on a bit later, real estate. But your traditional assets, equity, fixed income, how do we actually allocate within um, with, within those two asset classes? And if you think, how do I allocate between equities and fixed income? That's just the starting point. How do I actually allocate within equities itself? Um, are you looking at certain regions, certain sectors, certain, certain factors, value stocks, small cap stocks? And the reason why it is important, and I think that's undisputable, is Allocation has, has shown time and time again in the, in, the, in the industry and in the academic world that that provides the most value when it comes to portfolio return. We can explain most of our return by the underlying allocation. Your selection process, that's another part of what securities, what single securities or single markets am I selecting? That plays a less significant role than your asset allocation. And asset allocation is obviously also a very efficient tool to manage your risk. How do I manage risk? Well, let's first of all diversify. Let's add asset classes that are less risky. Let's concentrate on certain assets with a lower down, downfall risk, etc. So it's really an important topic in the whole portfolio construction process. Yeah, that, that's really good. Thanks very much. So what is an asset class? And let, let's start with that because I see quite a few different descriptions about this. Yes. So I think an asset class is um, if if you look at what an asset is supposed to do, it is there to deliver return. But the way that it's delivering the returns are not unique across all asset classes. And that's why we differentiate between asset classes. So the def definition that I've say, said on the screen, it's an asset class is a group of financial instruments that have similar characteristics and behave similarly in a marketplace. And that can be quite confusing. And I think in the next few slides, we're just going to confuse people even more because what I'm going to show you is that asset classes are actually not necessarily behaving in, in different ways. They're actually behaving very much aligned. But theoretically, an asset class should be, if you take one asset class, all of the assets in that asset class should be relatively homogenous. And when we say homogenous is they should have a very similar return profile. They should behave similar during certain market conditions. So we know if interest rates goes up, um, fixed income assets are coming down. That's a homogenous characteristic that we have of fixed income assets. Um, equity, we don't know. Most of the time it can come down due to economic pressures or sentiment in the market or whatever but that doesn't relate to the fact that interest rates are going up and therefore the asset will be priced lower um, as with fixed incomes. 
Then the second one is asset classes should be mutually exclusive. Now that's the most difficult one. So if something happens with one type of asset class, that should be mutually exclusive and shouldn't happen to all other assets as well, because then you don't have a mutually exclusive asset class. And then finally, asset classes should be diversified or diversifying, I think is the better word. So as you put these different asset classes together, you are getting diversification benefits, which we've discussed in another video is you can actually reduce your risk and increase your return by adding diversification benefits. Yeah, and there's lots of different asset classes, aren't there? And this slide kind of summarizes the main ones, if you'd like to talk us through it. Yes, so we spoke about equities and bonds. That's your traditional asset classes, property. Um, it's your oldest asset class. It started out in the old Roman era where people were thinking about transferring properties between each other. So that's an age-old asset class, actually. And then your more newer asset classes that people can think of is your private assets. Um, private assets or well, alternative assets are specifically made a distinguishment between private assets and hedge funds with a few question marks at the end. But private assets, your private equity, venture capital, it can even be as alternative as art is defined as an asset class. And my favorite one, red wine, not for any financial purposes, but red wine is actually an asset class. Um, so th those are your private asset classes. And then hedge funds, um, I think we often confuse as, a, as an asset class. People think, especially as hedge funds became more available to retail investors, that they should add that to a portfolio because hedge funds are another asset class that provides diversification. Hedge funds is not defined as an asset class. It's defined as an investment strategy. And most of the times, hedge funds consists of equities and bonds structured in different ways um, or contracts that's based on equities or bonds. So, yeah, that's your type of asset classes that you have. And I think the important one is just to note that something like a hedge fund or you've got other investment strategies are not necessarily asset classes. They are just different investment strategies. Yeah, I remember quite a few years ago when uh, pension legislation proposals were going to introduce the ability for pensions to hold red wine, art, antiques, cars, and there was so much talk around this as a, another diversifying asset class. I mean, it didn't happen, luckily, I think. Um, so yeah. does, does it work then? Does it actually reduce the risk? Yes, yes, I think so. That's the, that's the, the short answer. By diversifying between asset classes, you can diversify your portfolio risk. But the risk is not just volatility. And I think we should get rid of the idea that volatility is risk. There are so much more than just volatility. So the first risk that you need to diversify is your equity market risk, for example. Um, the equity market in itself is risky. Um, are your client, do you, do your client have the appetite to absorb all of the equity market risk? If the answer is no, it's probably a reason to diversify away from equity market risk by adding any asset that's not very much equity-like. And I'll show later on when we move to real estate, just show that certain asset classes like property, for example, is carrying a lot of equity market risk. So you need to find an asset class that doesn't have equity market risk, like fixed income, for example. Shortfall risk, um, and I'm going to I'm going to jump into this as well. Um, onto our control center where I want to show you the trade-off between shortfall risk and volatility. But um, just before I do that, the, the, the final two risks is your idiosyncratic risks, your, your, your risks of being concentrated not just in one asset class, but in a specific asset class, in a specific, think about Russian equities. If you had a 
very strong conviction on Russian equities pre-2022, that would have been a significant idiosyncratic risk, which would have resulted in a liquidity risk. Of course, good luck getting your money out of the Russian market when the markets drop down. So those are all types of risks that we, that we need to consider. So now just moving over to our control center on our timeline platform, where I want to show with you um, the trade-off between volatility or short-term risk. I like to call it short-term risk, volatility. What's the variance or the movements of my assets over a one-year period compared to your longer-term risk or your, or your sorry, your short-term risk volatility, your short-fall risk, your longer-term risk. So if you look at a one-year time frame. What you can see here is just the green line and I'm showing you the global market portfolio. It's called our timeline tracker portfolio. On the left-hand side, you've got a 100% fixed income portfolio. And then we are increasing the equity content by 10%, 20%, 30%, all the way up to our 100% equity portfolio. And the green line that you see, that's your best case scenario. It's the uh, one year period since 19, I think the, the data started in 1919, or all the way to up to date, well, to yesterday's data or um, a few days ago when this was last updated, you'll see your best one year was 43% in a, a global equity market. Your worst one year on the fixed uh, global fixed income market, your worst one year was minus 25%. And then if you go to the equity side, you see your worst one year was actually minus 38%. So what's that risk? That one year risk is You've got a downside, a downfall risk over a one-year period of 38% on equities, 25% on fixed income. So one, fixed income is clearly not a risk-free asset. I think we've all seen that last year. But two, it is even the worst-case scenario. It's not nearly as bad as the worst-case scenario on the equity side. And if I scroll up, <clears throat> you can also have a look at your expected volatility. So this is just volatility over 20 year rolling period since the 1920s. So it's taking more than 100 years of data. And on a fixed income side portfolio, you can expect a volatility of 9.99% as you increase equity slightly. Because of the diversification benefits, you can get a volatility number of 9.57, 9.6 with a 20% exposure to equities. And then if uh, all equity portfolio will have a volatility of roughly 17.44%. That's just what the global markets have done over the last 100 years. Now, the final thing that I want to show here, Richard, is we've seen the worst case scenarios. What's happening is if we increase our time horizon, let's take a 20-year time frame. I think that's a reasonable amount for most investors um, that's retiring or planning to retire. And what you can see after inflation, these numbers are real after inflation numbers. Over a 20-year time frame, your worst case scenario is still minus 30%. So by taking on a lower volatility asset, an asset that's less risky according to our modern day criteria of risk, we can still be negative in terms of purchasing power. As you increase your equity holdings, look at what's happening in your from your 60 portfolio, 70, 80, 90 to 100% equity portfolio. We're seeing that the worst case scenario over a 20 year time period is positive. So the conclusion here is by accepting some volatility by accepting some short-term market risk it actually reduces your long-term risk which i believe for most investors is more important in order to achieve their long-term goals before we move back to the slides could you just explain what those percentage figures in the average volatility column mean for parapanazans who are familiar with that 
So, so, the, so the, the the way we calculate these figures is a if you think about volatility, and I think people often confuse volatility stands for standard deviation. How much did my assets move up or down during a certain or during a certain period, usually over a one year time frame? And um, what this means is on the fixed income portfolio, you can expect your asset value or the value of fixed income to have a variance of nine point nine nine percent. So one standard deviation up or down 9.99%. Um, as you move towards the equity side, you can actually expect your variance or your standard deviation or your volatility of your equity to move up to 17.44%. Well, not up to on average. That's what you can expect on average for a portfolio. So a portfolio being down 10%, it's not that bad. You've got volatility of 17.44% on average. And I know I'm referring now to a downside risk and not necessarily volatility, but volatility just shows you that's the variance that the client must be able to accept during the journey. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you. So you've mentioned property and real estate a couple of times. If we bring the slides back up now, um, perhaps we can talk about why um, property and real estate is such an important asset class. Yes. So real estate is the one that I would like to use as an example, because traditionally, um, most advisors, and I've been an advisor before I came over to the UK, um, I was a financial planner in South Africa as well. And we often think that Real estate is an asset that you need in your portfolio as a separate line item because that provides diversification. It lowers your risk. And the first question is, is real estate actually important? And the first answer, without a doubt, I will say yes. Real estate is a significant asset. And I think you need your exposure to, to real estate. How do you get your exposure to real estate? And I've, I've talked about it earlier. You shouldn't have your exposure necessarily to the asset class, but to the underlying risks of that asset class. That's your true diversification, your true risk. So just real estate, it's by far the largest asset. If you combine all your fixed income and all your equity in the world, you are not getting nowhere near the value of global real estate. So it's by far the largest store of wealth. Um, and as you can see on the screen, it's three and a half times the total global GDP. So it's a significant asset. I don't want to miss that train. And that's why I'm saying we need exposure to real estate in our portfolios. So we talk about some, is that commercial real estate and private real estate? It's the whole lot lumped together. All of it, all of it, private, commercial, all of it together. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about how people can get exposure um, to real estate as an asset class. Yes. So there's a few ways. Um, and what, what you see on the screen, that's your obvious ways to get exposure to real estate and i'll show you later on that you can get exposure without these type of investments but one would be your direct holdings so we know direct holdings can be quite a challenge for most investors especially younger people starting out um, your collective investment schemes that's invested in direct property so your physical property funds you can just buy shares of companies that are engaged in real estate activities that are exposed to, to real estate activities and then the final one, I think that's more your common one that we are using these days are your REITs, your real estate investment trusts, where you are getting exposure to um, those type of trusts that are that they own properties and are regulatory, regula oh, struggling with my words now, they are regulatory obliged to pay out at least 90% of the income being earned by those properties. So you, you do get the exposure of real estate by investing in your REITs. Yeah, brilliant. And this chart compares the returns versus equities. 
Yeah, so what I was trying to show you here is, first of all, we should not invest in real estate to outperform the global market, to try and perform better, because that's not going to happen. Um, actually, we've got, and Richard, I think you'll put it, these slides up, we've got a load of, uh, a ton of slides here showing that there's no alpha. Real estate doesn't outperform or underperform equities over the long term. We've seen on slide here a significant divergence over the last three years. Um, that's just because of the whole COVID pandemic started out, interest rates were going up, people were moving out of the city. That had a significant impact on the real estate cycle. Over the long term, we don't see any alpha. We expect it to actually behave very much like equities in general. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thanks. And Arrange just mentioned we've got some slides here which you can download with lots of information uh, about returns. But I'd like to end on this one, which is a correlation between equities and real estate, if you'd like to talk us through this one. Yes, and I think this is a, this is a good slide to, to, to conclude the session on asset allocation, diversified diversification between the risks. How do we actually do that? So um, when we say we, want, we need to diversify, we inst instantly think of we need to add an asset class that has a low correlation to global equities or to the market. And what you can see here is just a correlation matrix, global equities on the top and your other asset classes at the bottom. As you can see, real estate, if you scroll, if you go to the one, two, three, fourth, um, for the, the fourth row, you'll see real estate has a correlation of 0 .0 0 0.73 with global equities. So it's less than one. So yes, anything lower than one, you do get diversification benefits. But then one can also make the argument that utilities have a correlation of 0 0.59. Energy has a correlation of 0 0.64. Healthcare has a correlation of 0 0.72. We don't usually view healthcare as a separate as a separate asset class. Still, it provides more diversification benefits than real estate, and that's the way that we think you should view diversification when it comes to asset allocation. It's more important to look at the risks of the underlying assets and not necessarily the risk of the underlying asset classes. Yeah, brilliant. That, that's a, a good conclusion to to end the session on there. So. Thank you very much for, for that. And if you'd like to ask any questions, don't forget you can pop them on the big tent or send us an email. And it's a big thanks from us to Laurentius and to Timeline for supporting us with these videos. And we look forward to seeing you again very soon. Goodbye. Thanks, Richard. Always a pleasure.